linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And in a few minutes, we're going to listen in on a conversation that I wish I'd heard, uh, oh, 20 or more years ago. It's a conversation between Shona Holm, Lily K. Ross, and Nashe Devano. Uh, and that actually, it took place uh, early this summer. And my hope was to get it out to you sooner, but alas, uh, life got in our way for a bit, which I'm sure also happens to you from time to time. As I was previewing their conversation, I couldn't help but to think about some other women who were also important leaders in our community. You can read about them yourself in the wonderful book titled Sisters of the Extreme, Women Writing on the Drug Experience. The book is edited by Cynthia Palmer and Michael Horowitz, uh, two names that every psychonaut should know. And in their collection, you'll find the works and stories of almost a hundred women whose lives were in one way or another influenced by psychoactive medicines. While you might expect to find stories about the Delphic Oracle and Cleopatra, Nefertiti, people like that in ancient history, you may be surprised to read about uh, women like Elizabeth Barrett Browning, George Sand, Sarah Bernhardt, Louisa May Alcott, Edith Wharton, Edith Piaf, Maya Angelou, Margaret Mead, Nina Graboldi, and Ann Shulgin, just to name a few. And I expect that in future books like this, you're also going to be able to read about the three women who are with us here today in the salon. I think that uh, perhaps many of my men friends here in the salon are going to be more than a little surprised at how us men, uh, without even realizing what we're doing, can sometimes act very much like the jerks in the default tea party world do. Uh, They do it as a matter of course, and we do it because we're not paying attention, I think. So let's listen as these brave women express a few of the thoughts that us, uh, well, us guys don't like to entertain. You know us, our two most feared words from our significant other are, let's talk. (laughs) And I am Shauna Holm, and I am here with Lily K. Ross and Nishay Devineau, and we're going to have a good old conversation here among three women in the psychedelic community who would like to express our opinions about a few things and and uh, and let this kind of free flow and I have been wanting to do this for some time so I'm just so excited for this and I am going to pass my hat uh to Nashe first and 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 we'll just each of us give a little brief introduction as to uh who we are, and uh, and then we'll launch into our conversation. So I'll have it, hand it over to you, Nishay. I think so. I am a graduate student uh, working on my PhD in comparative literature at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I've been here for five years now and working on my dissertation. I'm also a co-founder of the Psychedemia Psychedelics Conference that was held at the University of Pennsylvania in 2012, and uh, hopefully another Psychedemia will be coming uh, in the near future. Lily? Hello. Um, I hope there's another Psychedemia event in the future, Nishay. Uh, so my name is Lily, and I have just graduated with my Master's in Divinity from the Harvard Divinity School, and I'm still living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
I've done a lot of work um, sort of studying the contemporary uh, global phenomenon of ayahuasca use and tourism and healing work. Um, and in general, my uh, my interest in psychedelics, I think, falls under a larger umbrella um, for me of my interest in the alleviation of suffering and ways to um, to approach that and accomplish that, and, and I think psychedelics are a powerful way to do that. So, um, so that's kind of at this point where I'm at in in that in this field. And I'll, I'll add something just about my my work as well, since I didn't go into it. But I'm um, as I mentioned, I'm in a comparative literature program, and I'm studying uh, psychedelic philosophy and psychedelic culture within that. Because uh, comparative literature is a very flexible humanities field, so I can reference different texts and truth reports depending on what I want to do, and there's not any pushback against that. Um, and so my work really has been trying to develop studies within the humanities because, as we know, there's this big scientific push in the medical world right now um, with a resurgence of, of research, but there's not a tremendous amount of work uh, thinking about the implications of psychedelics for, uh, for you know, humanity and consciousness um, in the humanities now. So what I'm working on tools. Excellent. Yeah, and, and, and for myself, I have uh, written a book called Love and Spirit Medicine, which chronicles my own uh, journey with the uh, psilocybin mushroom, where I was working with that on a monthly basis, very shamanically, and at the same time searching for uh, uh, books that detailed a woman's experience, and, and, and not actually as sort of an academic telling, but a very deeply personal telling. I, I, I wanted to hear what, what do these medicines do? What is their impact on your life? So I wrote that book, and, and uh, I'm working on my third book right now on the honeybee, and I'm a shamanic practitioner in the Pacific Northwest and also a public speaker and a teacher. So, so yeah, so this is a really uh, beautiful trio of women here. So let's get into our discussion here and let us uh, begin by talking about what it is like for each of us to be women in this modern psychedelic culture. So maybe we'll, we'll, we'll start with you, Lily. Oh goodness, for starting with me, eh? Um, yeah, you know, it's it's been a very very interesting um, journey. I I've, I came into this culture, this sort of psychedelic culture, uh, which is a really broad term. I mean, there's a lot of subcultures within this kind of larger umbrella that we refer to as psychedelic culture. Uh, I came into this kind of milieu when I was twenty, about maybe a little bit younger. So it's been about eight years, and uh, and my own identity has been really formed throughout that time, and the forming of my identity as, as a human being and as a woman has been very much shaped by my involvement in psychedelic culture. Um, at this point, I would say that, you know, I've learned a lot about um, – how it is to be a professional woman in a male-dominated field. Granted, most fields are male-dominated. Um, the psychedelic field is, it seems to be 
maybe a little more male-dominated than a lot of other fields right now, which I find interesting because the psychedelic culture also seems to really state and restate the narrative that it is very cutting edge and, and really pushing the boundaries on so many fronts, and yet the sort of gender front seems to be lagging in so many ways. Um, so I've had a lot of personal encounters um, in the culture with a number of different members uh, who are who are male that have just left me very um, challenged and very frustrated and very um, at times very angry at what feels like a sort of normative oppression in uh, oppressing environment actually. Um, so it's it's been really really challenging and it's also been uh, very illuminating and has taught me a tremendous amount about you know, a more mainstream American culture and how it relates to women because there's so many parallels between those two things. And the psychedelic women that I know um, are some of the most, you know, compassionate and uh, educated and knowledgeable and wonderful women that that I've ever met. And so um, so it's, it's a really complex kind of question with a lot of different elements to it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it absolutely is. It's it's uh many layered. And uh and and when you speak of the oppression that you 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 feel could you elaborate a bit on that with the guys? Where where are you going with that? Yeah. Um well, it depends on the context, you know, and and what it is that people conceive of as psychedelic culture. For instance, there's this transformational festival culture that is very, very popular and, and gaining a lot of momentum internationally. And I think a lot of people in that particular subculture identify as psychedelic users or psychedelic people. Um, and I see a tremendous amount of, of sexualization and objectification of women um, I encounter in my own sort of interactions with a lot of people what feels like um, sort of, I don't know, it's, in this moment it's kind of hard to name, but there is a way in which I feel people uh, resisting my um, sort of empowered identity and self as as an educated woman with a powerful voice who talks about sexuality and also talks about a lot of other issues as well, um, I experience a lot of pushback against that. Within the psychedelic you know, community? Oh, totally, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, like, if I, if I don't really go to festivals, I'm not really, uh, I don't really do much of that at this point in my work um, and in my personal life, but... But when I do show up in those communities, I find that there is, um, you know, I, I feel like I'm always having to resist being pigeonholed or pushed into this um, this sexualized, objectified identity that I find very unsettling and very limiting to who I am and, frankly, what I have to offer um, as a human being. You know, I had a conversation, to give an example, I had a conversation with a male uh, member of the community that I was organizing an event with, and I was saying to him, you know, I find I find the objectification of uh, and sexualization of women in the subculture to be very unsettling. And his response to me was, well, you know, 
that you you sound just like angry to me and I, I I think it's great that you know women are are really into the sexual you know expression I think it's really empowering and I just kind of scratched my head like oh my gosh you really don't get this like women's empowerment in its genuine form has absolutely nothing to do with what you think is empowering you know like why is why do you have the final say you know, and, and why are you kind of pushing back against something that I'm saying I find unsettling? Not necessarily asking you to agree with it, but you don't have to like the fact that you think it's empowering doesn't is not the, a stopping point to our conversation. You know, are, it's, are you speaking it's, to the, the sexual empowerment? Is that what you're you're saying? Y- yeah. 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 That there's more than this, just the sexual empowerment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more than that, and yet um, that's something that I I feel myself and see a lot of women pushing against, you know, um, or or kind of feeling like we're up against. It's also just really hard to get our voices in there, you know. It's it's hard to uh, find the platforms and find the spaces to speak as a woman. It's it's not as easy for women as it is for men. There just aren't the same amount of spaces. And multiple times I have found myself invited to participate in events where I am the only woman or I am in the minority of women who are speaking or participating in that kind of way. Um, And I, every time I feel like the token woman. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. just, it's like, what? (laughs) I, I thought we were supposed to be a radical subculture. Like, what? here yes it does it does make one wonder well well we're going to come back to this i want to get to niche and and niche ask you that same question and then and then mm-hmm. i'll also speak to it and then the three of us can really roll on this so yeah, you know, so I'm, just gonna, yeah. I'm just gonna start with or one response to something that lily said um it made me think of there was a talk um in 2012 at Planque norte which is a a psychedelic speaker series at Burning Man. Um, and the talk was given by Dr. Maggie Corbin. Um, I believe mm-hmm. she's also speaking at the, spoken at the Women's Visionary Congress. Um, but her talk was called um, The Politics of Knowledge in the Psychedelic Sciences. And mm-hmm. in the description, um, she mentions that she's a, she describes herself as a feminist scholar committed to liberatory politics. And she um, works a lot within women's studies and in in the talk, if I remember correctly, because I haven't I watched it a while ago, but she mentioned that when she brings up these kind of political feminist issues within uh, for psychedelic audiences, a lot of people are uh, resistant to that and see it as kind of like a a, a turn off or a bummer, or it's something that's you know it's not fun to think about like difficult topics that are hard to maneuver through, but I think that they're very important to be having, it's important to be having those conversations, even though they're not, like, the sort of thing that you want to be doing at a festival, you know, to have fun. Mm-hmm. Does that, does that make sense, or? Mm-hmm. Um, and then to get into myself, um, I started working publicly uh, with psychedelics when, um, in about in 2010. Before that, I was interested in them intellectually, but I didn't know that I could be 
open about my interest. And so I, it wasn't until I learned that these conferences were going on, like um, the math conferences on Horizons in New York City, that I realized that um, I could uh, sort of come out with my interest in a more explicit way. Um, and early on, I, I also kind of experienced what Lily's mentioning with this token woman speaker, um, which also, I mean, was a good, it opened up doors for me that would not have been there necessarily otherwise. So, for example, um, I received a, Mass had put out a call on behalf of um, Entheogenesis Australis, Australis EGA in Australia. Um, they uh, put on conferences every once in a while, and they, the year before I came, I spoke at, in 2011 and 2010, there were, um, I think 50 men speakers to one woman speaker. And at the end, even though the, the audience was mixed, and that's typically what you'll find, it's not just men who are going to the conferences that are male-dominated. Um, and so a woman at the end stood up and said, what's going on here? Like, why is this such a huge disparity? And then as a result of that kind of controversy, they made a huge push for the subsequent year to find women speakers. And so I... Um, you know, I was invited to come from the United States and offered to um, help significantly with my transportation. And so between the conference and my department, I was able to cover the, the trip there. And this is a, um, when I got to Australia, there was a, a flyer for the conference. And um, so there was a full program, but there was also a smaller program that had the kind of like featured speakers. And I knew basically feature just from, you know, being familiar with their work and their kind of like famous figures within the community. And then there was a picture of me on this featured flyer, you know, this like, you know, just a few years into grad school, um, you know, woman. And so, you know, it was because I think they needed to have more uh, balance on their, their public front that there were some women and they, but the fact that they, needed to get me all the way from the United States, which is really far away. And that year, there were still only seven to something like 50 men, even the year where they were explicitly trying to make this push to get more women speakers. And um, and something else that I've noticed regarding that is there seems to be this frustration kind of with women. People have been posing. It's not a that there aren't as many women speakers. It's like something that people are pretty... A lot of people notice that. It's not subtle. But at the same time, the people who are putting these events on usually say that they are open to women coming and they invite women, but women just don't want to talk and women just don't necessarily want to get on the stage. And I think that there's this kind of disconnect between women like feeling comfortable participating in certain ways and the kinds of platforms that are available. Because... I don't think that women just only want to talk about women's issues. I don't think that women only want to lead workshops, which is what I've heard a lot, that the men want to speak on stage and the women are more, you know, community-oriented and want to participate in things. But that's, you know, that's one of the explanations that I've heard offered to explain. Um, one other thing I have to mention on my, for my own uh, story is that uh, so I recently, last year, became a mom uh, for the first time to Ellis, who is almost a year, just a few weeks away from being a year old. 
And um, I noticed that that had a really big impact on my um, public sort of projection of my work and my interests. Because before I became pregnant and became a mother, I was very active on Facebook and, you know, Twitter and that kind of thing with um, putting out research and, um, you know, commenting on current events and things like that. And so a lot of people uh, knew of me just from, you know, following my work online. But then when I had a baby, and this was especially... Uh, affected because we were uh, re- relying on milk donations from women who we didn't know, and I felt very self-conscious about being so public with my interests because uh, I was afraid that if people, you know, this is in retrospect, I kind of realized that this happened. I was worried that women who saw what I was working on like wouldn't be as enthusiastic about sharing their milk with us. So. You know, I that might have just been in my head, but in retrospect, I did notice that it had a big uh, impact on my sort of interaction with the the outside world and the internet in the past in the past year. Hmm. Yeah, of course. Well, that's something to think about, and also even um, it. Uh, I, I think it's a factor in terms of how many women want to put their voice in the pot here, as it were, because many of them are mothers. And uh, and so there are numerous reasons there for maybe wanting to keep it on the down low in terms of their participation in these conferences. That said, that that that's one way to look at it. And then another though is that I just you know came back from the Women's Visionary Congress my second year in a row, and gosh, there were plenty of women there <laughs> who were fantastic speakers who had quite a lot to contribute to the discussion, and and they were. Fascinating, and uh, and I will just say from my own personal experience, uh, I am not uh, a recreational user of substances. I'm, uh, and I barely drink. So when, and I'm very new to the uh, psychedelic community. My approach came from uh, my own uh, seven eight years of a very dedicated uh, shamanic work and my approach to the medicine was you know done uh ceremonially ritually at night in the dark lying down eyes closed i mean it was very very interior and very uh, shamanic and uh and and so that's also you know when i kind of look around i'm like all right where are more of these sort of medicine women you know where are these mystical medicine women who have so much of their wisdom to contribute and uh, no, it's not academic. They're not in the field of medicine. They're not in the field of psychiatry. Uh, they are carrying what I think is a, a lineage that I know I carry as well. Uh, and that is that plant medicines have long been the domain of women. And we have a pattern uh, through our history of women being marginalized and there's a wonderful book by Barbara Tedlock, Ph.D., called The Woman in the Shaman's Body. And she uh, goes into this exploring how, of course, uh, the majority of uh, archaeologists and anthropologists were men and, and they had their biases at the time. And also people uh, commenting and writing about these cultures were priests, missionaries, and the uh, Women in those shamanic communities, the shamanic women, were dismissed altogether. 
and 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 completely marginalized and uh and thought of as witches and whatnot and another piece I see also is uh, a, a bit of a uh, a pattern here throughout history of men usurping women in the very areas that women have traditionally excelled and and saying this i'm not um I actually do not identify myself as a feminist. I think we all have to get our shit together, as it were. Um, and so I don't want to um, sort of uh, alienate uh, the guys. I am simply speaking to, you know, what we've been dealing with for several centuries and beyond. So, uh, and and we've got the Catholic Church who, you know, just waged absolute uh, murderous war against uh, medicine women and wipe them out, particularly the older women, I will say. In fact, those are the women they went after first, were the older women. And then in the middle of the, uh, uh, gosh, it was 1900s, I think, the AMA waged quite a vicious campaign against midwives to fully discredit them, uh, which yep. was a very long-held traditional woman's medicine practice. Got them well out of the way. And, uh, you know, and now everyone gives birth in a hospital. And, uh, you know, we're, we don't need to visit that discussion, but I, I have noticed this and I see, huh, once again, I am noticing in the uh, psychedelic community, as you're saying, Lily, like, seems to be so forward-thinking and so open-minded, and yet we look at these conferences and we see all these guys uh, speaking, um, and uh, mostly sort of white guys who are sort of decorated with their degrees. And I wonder in my head if, if there is, uh, they are... Endeavoring, I mean, they're clearly endeavoring to sort of validate uh, these these uh, plant medicines and these other substances that have a great deal to offer society. But part of me sort of scratches my head, and I think, hmm, I wonder if you know the actual medicine women and the whole mystical side of this. Ooh, that's being uh, kept away. Let's keep those ones out of the discussion because they will invalidate what we are trying to do, and. Uh, I, I, I really feel that, and it's it's not so subtle. And and I wonder to myself, you know, you have the 13 grandmothers, and I'm like, where's you know, uh, Doña Julieta, you know, Grandma Julieta? Why why is she not speaking? Yeah, I know she doesn't speak English, but get an interpreter. I'll sit there for hours listening to that woman and her pour out her wisdom, you know, of how she works with the medicine and and what it has done for her and the uh, people who come to her for her her help. And this is what I am wanting to hear uh, more of and for myself endeavoring to, uh, you know, bring my voice to the table and share a bit of, of my experience with that as well. But, you know, we have all these amazing medicine women around the globe. you got to dig a little bit, but my goodness, they're there. And they're doing fine, fine work, and they have uh, a lot to say. And uh, yeah. it does not uh, sort of fit in with the psychiatric model or the medical uh, model. I, I think it goes far deeper. And, and uh, yeah, go on. Someone's going to say something. Well, yeah, um, this is so interesting, and this is something that I, I had the opportunity to really take up for a time in my, in my own graduate studies, which is that, you know, what we're talking about are very subversive ways of knowing, Right? So we're talking about ways of knowing and ways of learning and ways of encountering meaningful information that is, is considered to be very, um, threatening to 
sort of normative ideas of what knowledge is or is supposed to be. So mm-hmm. kind of what I mean by that is there is a narrative that legitimate knowledge is knowledge that is produced within, often within the scientific method and framework mm-hmm. and methodology. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, and it comes out of, you know, these accredited research institutions of enduring reputation. I mean, it's sort of this ivory tower. Well, the walls of that ivory tower, I think, are the narrative, uh, is, is the narrative that only that kind of knowledge counts and other kinds of knowledge don't count. And so, you know, you have this phenomenon to this day where you have anthropologists that they, you know, walk out the door of the ivory tower and they go out into the world and they encounter these people who have these wild practices and these wild ways of learning about the world and, and then they kind of document it and they analyze it and, and, and perform some crazy reduction to it and, and then they end up with some kind of theory that, that is oftentimes a really impoverished attempt at, at a mistranslation of this deep cultural tradition and knowledge and way of even approaching knowledge and the production of knowledge, right? So, which is, you know, when to take that then and talk about it specifically in the context of the psychedelic community, I think in general when you start talking about mystical experiences as a meaningful part of people's lives, you're already venturing into territory that is so subversive and so in some ways just kind of illegitimate within this knowledge system that we have. Um, and then you take it a step further and you say that mystical state was induced by a chemical or by a plant, and suddenly it's just like, well, that's out the window. That just doesn't even count anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Um so to really examine that and to say, actually, uh, these other voices do matter, and there is a, a rich and growing sort of corner of academic discourse that is aimed at um, at really actually, I think, carving out that kind of space so that these other voices and these other ways of, of relating to and constructing knowledge uh, can can really be heard and can really be learned from and can be taken seriously alongside um, things like, you know, the scientific method or other ways of constructing and finding and producing knowledge. Yes. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. And it, it maybe because the, the, basically the crux of what I'm doing with my dissertation, which is coming at uh, psychedelics from sort of the Western philosophical canon and literary canon. But in doing that, in referencing those things, I'm trying to use that to show how there are these other ways of knowing from within the philosophy that is espoused in academia. So while I'm not myself like doing that work of going into like, you know, these these other frames, like I'm I'm trying to work towards like making it so that communication or dialogue is more accessible between these different knowledge systems or at least respect on the most fun- fundamental level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that that that's so uh, Im- important. I really see that feminine piece has been cast out, and it's been cast out. Didn't happen this century. <laughs> it happened maybe 1,400 years ago, uh, and it's it's never really been able to make much of a, a, a comeback uh, until I think we we stand a, a shot at this at this point. 
And uh, that is a, a wisdom. I, I, I was so glad that you spoke, Lily, to uh, this sort of gilded ivory tower of, of knowledge of, of knowledge that is acceptable. And yet, it is. There's so much more out there. And I have been uh, studying a little bit of Gatta. And he was, uh, I didn't just write Faust, and he was obviously a very gifted uh, poet and writer, but he was also a scientist and a botanist. Mm. And he understood that there was an animating force. There were animating forces behind everything, everything. Uh, Whereas material science, uh, you know, the modern science, it will reduce everything down to the smallest part. And if it can't see it, it is dismissed altogether. And and this is the mm-hmm. other piece, too, with these plant medicines. I, I think, okay, fine, guys, you can um, distill it down to, oh, it's psilocin and it's this and this, that's great. Uh, but uh, a Gertian, uh scientific mind would, of course, understand, oh, no, 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 dear, this is a great mystery, and you can distill it all you want. There is an animating force behind that plant, and it is a mystery that you will never, we will never know. Let's have a little humility, uh, which I think women uh, really uh, can bring to, to, to the table as well. And, uh, and, and a very deep respect for what this is and for what this really does activate within the human soul. Uh, these medicines are very much uh, a portal. And we live in a culture that is spiritually impoverished. It is grossly superficial. There is nothing of any meaning in this culture. And I have two girls, 13 and 16. I can tell you, I hear the music. I, you know, I see what they are uh, exposed to. Uh, as much as I try to uh, curb that uh, with some success, but it is mighty pathetic. And so this this voice, this sacred feminine uh, uh, medicine voice that women bring to the table, I think actually people are hungry for it, hungry for it. And I see the success of the Women's Visionary Congress and and see, you know, just the reaction of, of, of the audience to these women and, and what they bring. And even they, I know, would love to have even more medicine women bring that uh, in as well, because I see almost a self-conscious piece in some of these women, uh, you know, and, 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 and it's totally understandable in that they almost feel like they, they've got to sort of validate themselves with, you know, sort of certain, you know, degrees or whatever. Otherwise, it's like who's going to take them seriously? I mean, that's what's sort of the platform that I think has been sort of set up for us. This yeah. is what, part of what strikes me as so interesting about all of this is is the 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 need to feel legitimized or legitimate which i think I, and i'm sort of i'm riffing a little bit here cuz i haven't thought this through yet but it just kind of it seems like a powerful idea because i think ultimately what we are aiming for is not to be right but to be understood Mm-hmm. And and not, I mean, you know, the degree to which a human can understand another human is, is kind of a mysterious and ambiguous thing and is argued in many directions. So it's not even about, like, this, like, accurate understanding, but the desire to communicate and the desire to be heard and the desire to have a voice that is listened to within and beyond one's own community to be able to meaningfully participate in these different conversations and bring in 
um, you know, uh, I mean, the way that I approach it is that, um, that my relationship to, in some instances, in some conversations, my relationship to psychedelic materials and the things that I have learned through that that relationship will kind of come into conversation and I'll, I'll kind of put it on the table like one of the things I've learned is this. And it's not that the whole conversation is about psychedelics, but it's a way of saying, you know, this is this is something I have learned from this work, and it 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 belongs in this conversation, and it deserves to be heard alongside something that was learned in a classroom, or alongside something that was learned, you know, in some other kind of setting. If that makes sense. Mhm. Yep. Yep. And 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 I ask also the whole legitimate piece. Legitimate for who? Legitimate mm-hmm. for what? Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, I I I think also. Uh, because I have not been a part of this community, I kind of, I don't know, I kind of just feel like I'm, I'm my own person. I can sort of think for myself and, and I've got a little something to put to the pot and, and then I want to hear from other people and I, I really sort of don't care who sort of considers me quote unquote legitimate or not. Uh, I don't know, also the whole sort of PC thing, you know, being, P, you know, I mean, that's just being correct for politics. I, no, I'm not a body politic. You know, I'm an individual, and and uh, and I want to hear from other individuals who can think for themselves and and reason and and bring their good wisdom to the table, and not worry about having to be sort of self-conscious and you know validate anything. You know, let's just sort of hear hear what you have to say. And uh, and yeah, there's a lot of uh, I have noticed uh, sort of posturing here at the you know a couple of other conferences that I've attended. Just just uh just uh, noting noting that. So would so. you ideally like to see anyone who wants to speak be able to get on the podium regardless of their kind of... Uh, no, because... Well, not no, but I mean, you know, there's a lot of sort of outrageousness as well. What I'd really like to see is, I think the three of us agree on this, is more women's voices and what I want to hear from really is more of these medicine women, these women, you know, shamanic women uh who are working with these medicines, uh, particularly with, with other other people. I mean, you know, we're getting some very exciting studies, of course, from the medical psychiatric community on what these medicines do, but you know, I'm I'm interested also in, in, in the actual sort of human uh you know, sort of telling of, of, of what those experiences have been. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and we're I, we're not getting enough of that. And I think that you know that in in addition to that, I think there should also be more women who are, you know, theorizing maybe more speculatively and not you know, I think there's like there's a there's a complete avoidance of the medicine women and then even within the you know legitimate science world there aren't you know there are dramatically fewer women than men and i feel like both sides need to be addressed i agree i agree i two things one's just a brief comment just to kind of specify for some of our listeners just the point that you know the the generally the subjects of anthropological research and ethnobotanical research uh, in the psychedelic field has been done with male shamans Mm-hmm. There's been almost none done with with female shamans. So um, 
So there's a need for researchers to be in collaboration with these people, and then there's also these women, and, and also a need for these women's voices to just simply be um, heard if they want to be heard, you know, because a lot of them, as far as I know, are also pretty uh, pretty adamant about staying underground and staying fairly inaccessible for their own personal reasons. The other thing, uh, Nishay, I wanted to ask you this, which is, um, you know, since you have a, a background and training in, you know, things like critical thinking and things like that, I wondered if you could kind of speak to, um, you know, how what you think of some of the more uh, far out or less um, robust, perhaps, uh, ideas that, that seem to gain a lot of momentum in, in the psychedelic culture and what you think the role of uh, the, the potential uh, benefit and some of the potential harm that's done uh, by, by critical thinking in this community. Uh, well, that's, uh, I guess, a big question. Well, I know, I mean, for example, like Terrence McKenna has an outsized uh, presence in, uh, I think, psychedelic philosophy within psychedelic culture. And, um, you know, and, and for good reason, I would say, but um, there's also perhaps like an over-reliance on some of his formulations at the expense of sort of thinking things through um, more deeply or expounding upon certain um, topics. But um, can you like kind of like give an example of the kind of issues that you um, are thinking of? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, like, outside of the academic discourse and, like, the more popular discourse, um, there's, there seems to be people that they, they don't seem to have any training in critical thinking at all and therefore seem to ascribe to, um, really, how do I even say this? It's kind of hard to put words around. But it's like, you know, even just bringing up a phrase like critical thinking, I know that there are people out there that would be like, well, critical thinking is critical and criticism is bad. So we're mm-hmm. not going to do that. Like, it's we're going to just agree with each other incessantly. Um, do you see yeah. kind of what I'm saying? Yeah. And, I mean, I think, you know, this is probably not exactly what you're referring to, but just as an example of uh, lack of critical thinking or thinking deeply about something is the the issue of the the pineal gland's role with DMT because like within whenever I encounter someone in a conversation with DMT, 90% of the time, if not higher, the person will mention, oh, that's from your pineal gland. It's released when you die, and they're stated as facts, but they're not facts, and it's just this kind of in-group, you know, circulated idea that isn't you know, isn't confirmed and isn't, you know, but but it's so widespread that within the culture it kind of has taken on a life of its own. And that's, you know, it's different from other conceptual things because it's a, you know, scientific fact, but I think it's an illustration of the ways that ideas tend to stick and, you know, get circulated even if they're not the only possibility. Well said. But have there been, um, have you noticed specific ideas that seem to be kind of, complacently circulated? Oh, that's a can of worms, baby. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's something about uh, a lot of psychedelic culture has a lot of overlaps with sort of pop spirituality and uh, and psychology and some of this kind of stuff. And so right now a really popular idea that I see uh, 
in the broader community is this idea, for instance, that you create your own reality and, and manifest your destiny um, in some way, which, I mean, I've heard people use that phrase, manifest your destiny, which I'm just like, do you not know that that's like a really serious throwback to a colonial narrative that led to the genocide of millions of people? Uh, and it's, it's definitely, in even in, you know, America today, it's the same kind of rationale that a lot of conservative Republicans will use to not help the poor. It's because those people, you know, they somehow deserve that. That's the type of person they are, that they created that state of poverty for themselves. And so it's not, you know, it's disrespecting them to to try to help them. And that's, a, I mean, it's a very dangerous idea because it it allows people to not act and not try to change things when, you know, that's in their power. And it, it leads to, I've seen this myself just in my own experience and my own story, I mean, it leads to a lot of very insidious victim blame. Um, plus, there's no room for God in that narrative, as far as I know. Um, you know, if you create your own reality truly, then there's no room for some holy other in that um, in that larger... Uh, I, it's, yeah, I mean, it's... Um, it's a really pervasive idea, and a lot of people are really resistant to have it having it critiqued. And there is a certain religiosity and sort of a whole host of profound spiritual convictions that seem to be a lot of people assume to be held by the whole psychedelic community. In that way, like there, there's sort of this religious movement aspect to it, and yet uh, people really don't want you know they they, they rally against you know organized religion and fundamentalism and this and that um, when, you know, one of the things that a lot of those religious traditions have built into their structure is a rigorous tradition of critique and of thinking through and of theology and of, you know, trying to see how it is that ideas work or don't work in, in lived life. And there isn't a robust theological tradition or anything of that sort or tradition of criticism or self-critique uh, within the psychedelic community. And so these ideas, they they kind of, um, they just get so, they just get so popularized and so blown out of proportion it's uh and they're ideas that I find problematic and very hard to take seriously. And so I you know, it's it's a whole it's a whole can of worms. <laughs> well it's it's I mean, the psychedelic community is a pretty darn loosely knit group, wouldn't you say? I mean, as you know, yep. th- there are many, many sort of subcultures of that. And uh and, and, and it seems, you know, we've got the whole sixties piece too of this whole sort of reaction against uh, you know, anything organized. And, uh, and yet, uh, you know, there are some, I don't know, I, I like these sort of, there's lineages and, and we don't really have lineages in the psychedelic community either. I mean, if you're, you know, lucky enough to find your way to, you know, a, a very honorable and decent ayahuasca shaman or an honorable and decent mushroom shaman, you know, perhaps you can, uh, you know, establish yourself within that lineage, but I know, you know, that you will find that there are a, a certain, certain structures, or shall we say moral codes, and I find that morals, that's like a dirty word these days, 
And I actually uh, want to speak to that real quick, too, because I looked that up. One of my favorite dictionaries is Webster's 1828. I really prefer the older books. And it is interesting, by the way, if you are looking up a word and, and then you want to look in sort of the later dictionaries and you can see how that word kind of tends to morph and change. But just real quick, I looked up moral. Number seven uh, uh, under, under that in the Webster's 1828 says, in general, moral denotes something which respects the conduct of of men and their relations as social beings whose actions have a bearing on each other's rights and happiness and are therefore right or wrong, virtuous or vicious, as moral character, moral views, moral knowledge, moral sentiments, moral maxims, on and on, or moral denotes something which respects the intellectual powers of man as distinct from his physical powers. Thus we speak of moral evidence, moral arguments, on and on. Um, but anyway, I just think that is something to think about as well because one thing I also, when you're talking about this sort of, these sort of new age pieces that are making their way through these crowds, there's this sort of anything goes kind of mentality and oh, we won't judge, it's all good, it's all, you know, and then create your reality and all this kind of thing. And I think, well, but you know, there is, you know, sort of, right and wrong and 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 i yes of course that can be very subjective but um i think you know when you are uh delving into the spiritual in this way i i think it becomes very uh, uh apparent and that is something to pay attention to as well like let's get a little bit of structure here mm. it doesn't mean we have to all become you know uh, monks here, but let's, you know, so so for me, for instance, with the way that I approach the medicine, and I am actually very candid about my work with that medicine for my own self, but uh, I do follow my own uh, structures here. In other words, you know, you're not going to see me, you know, tripping my brains out at a big party, and, um, you know, sorry if people take that like I'm judging, but I am saying for me that's not working. That's not how I approach the medicine. And and what I would like to see is more uh, of a a little more attention paid to the ritual uh, uh, way of a pr the ritual approach to to these medicines uh, to to go into a very deep and profound experience and yes yeah yeah you can do that with, with without that but I find it quite elevating for me and and also have uh, a sort of a, a full body not a reaction but a, like a, a a full body no shall we say to kind of screwing around with with that um, I actually take it very seriously that Lily, I think you posted an article a few weeks ago about the significance of ritual with psychedelics and how and the impact of losing ritual with psychedelic use. Do you happen to remember that article? Nope. Well, no, I did. I posted an article that I had actually written on Elephant Journal that was about party culture and how that. Uh, and drug use in party culture and how that interfaces in different ways with uh, sacramental use and medicinal use. Do tell. Let's hear it, Lily. Elaborate. Oh, oh God. Well, um, what to even say about it now? Uh, you know, the article was really interesting. I know some people really dug it and some people really did not. Um, and the intention behind it was to really stir the pot. So 
I see it as actually really a more nuanced issue than what I actually gave voice to, but I wanted to give voice to a side of the spectrum that uh, and give a perspective that I just hadn't heard spoken before, which is that, um, you know, people are many times at festivals, I hear people talking about their decision to take drugs recreationally as um, this kind of sacred shamanic healing journey or some combination of those kinds of buzzwords that, that kind of sacralize this recreational drug use. And what I was kind of making a push for is to say, actually, there is a difference between showing up to a research facility or, or showing up to some kind of um, sacred and contained ritual context with a significant amount of preparation and integration work and taking drugs at a party. There's a difference between those things. And I'm not saying that taking drugs at a party is, and using drugs recreationally is a bad thing. I'm not telling people to change their behavior. That's not my place to say. Um, but I think that people need to uh, – I, I, I would encourage people to really think about the names that they give to these experiences because – um, because the way that I have been taught, I didn't say this in the article, but the way that I have been taught to approach the sacred is that the sacred is something that demands a tremendous amount of, of respect and, and preparation to approach, and it's, and it's desecrating to call recreational use sacred use. It's also, you know, we talked about legitimate, legitimacy a little while ago in this conversation, and I think that, you know, the move to paint recreational use as sacred um, actually flies in the face of, of a desire to just kind of normalize recreational drug use as a, a meaningful part of people's lives. You know, we don't have to call it sacred for it, sacred for it to be um, beneficial to people or for it to be meaningful to people or for it to be, you know, any of these other things. We actually, I think, in some ways uh, do a disservice to the effort to kind of normalize different forms of drug use by doing that and end up conflating all of these categories, which I think is actually really useful for them to be distinct. I don't think any of them, sacred, medicinal, recreational, I don't think any of them are inherently better than the others, uh, but I think it's really valuable to to kind of see them as different Absolutely. and give them different names. And uh, one thing I wanted to mention that bears on this and last few things we were talking about is I've been reading a really phenomenal book uh, these past few weeks um, about Patrick Lundborg called Psychedelia, an Ancient Culture, a Modern Way of Life. And in the introduction, the first chapter to that book, he talks about how he felt like one of the possible shortcomings of the 60s was a tendency for otherwise very smart savvy intellectual people to latch on to the first metaphor or the first explanation that fit the situation. And he described how psychedelics have a tendency to bounce back at you, your assumptions coming into it. And so there's this kind of circular process where you make up your mind about what it, the experience means and what your relationship to the experience is, and then it kind of reinforces that for you. But in this book, he was suggesting that we, you know, try to very rigorously, uh, you know, remain as unattached to particular interpretations of the experience in order to kind of dwell in that space of 
not knowing and being open to something that we haven't already conceived from our past experience. And I think that that, you know, it relates to the, the issue of these circulated memes among various strands of the culture, because if we're if we're all kind of reinforcing one way of looking at it, then I think it's potentially limiting what we can get out of the experience. Highly. I, I agree. I mean, I, I tend to look at these, uh, well, I really like to sort of work with an experience, but I work with it often like it is a dream so that it speaks, uh, the experience speaks to me in, in, in metaphor, which I find really, really helpful, really useful, because I also do a lot of, of dream work. I find dreams to be amazing and, and hugely helpful. And so an experience with a, the medicine uh, is very intense uh, version of that. And uh, and I also think that uh, these medicines and the deep psyche speak in symbol, symbol in symbolism, metaphor. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you... You brought that forth, because uh, yeah, and I, I don't think there's, and also there, there, there's so many ways to sort of uh, look. I don't think there's any sort of one way you can look at an experience because they are as unique as the individual working with the substance, right? So it, it could be all manner of things. You know, you could locate a spirit and have a, a very important discussion with with that spirit. Uh, who's going to give you a teaching or, or it could be, you know, something that is brought forth from, from your past that you have a deeper awareness of or, you know, you, I mean, a, any number of things, right? And so there are, uh, a, numerous approaches as you integrate that experience moving, moving forward. But I, I like the dream piece. I really do see these as extraordinary, uh, sort of dream, dream work and metaphor. It's it's really deep stuff, and I love what both of you are saying. Uh, Nishé, your nod toward this rigorous practice of not knowing, um, cultivating, for me, like it's, it's been very valuable to cultivate a tolerance for ambiguity, but also to cultivate a tolerance for simultaneous contradictory truth. Mm-hmm. And to be able to say... There are multiple truths here, and mm-hmm. I'm unco- I mean, I'm just unsettled by the notion of absolute truth in general. Um, I just don't see much. Uh, I see more harm than good often coming from convictions of absolute truth, in my opinion. And so, uh, so I kind of stay away from that, which means that you know this this idea of like really holding paradox and really. Um, putting those pieces together and just kind of being able to hold it and being able to have a tolerance for life being messy and not all of the puzzle pieces fitting together and realizing that, like, that's kind of awesome. It's interesting. It's fascinating. And pieces are always kind of moving. And isn't that fascinating? You know, I mean, it certainly becomes a very rich intellectual exercise that has lived implications for, um, for how people kind of engage with their lives. I think, I mean, it's really affected how I engage with my own life. I, I, I see intellectual exercise and a heart opening as well. Because I, one thing I have noticed, like with, with the guys from uh, a number of these sort of books that I was, I was reading in the beginning is, as I was thinking, huh, these guys are really making this quite an intellectual exercise. And, 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 and I see, you know, the, the joy of that. 
but that it is also tremendously heart opening as well. I mean, I, I really think of you know for, from from where I come from with the mushroom is is, is that it is heart medicine in, in in a very profound way. And uh, and then speaking to truths, I do actually have a a, a guide in terms of uh, maybe we call it absolutes. I don't I don't know. Uh, but I always look to the legal maxims, the maxims of law, which go way, way, way back. And so um, they're listed in, in the back of the, uh, the Bouvier's uh, law book. And I just, I, I will often look to those uh, for a little guidance when I, when I need it. Because I find those, it's more like old wisdoms, old, old wisdoms, you know, they're, and, and, and they're, um, they make rational sense, you know, like you hear something and you're like, huh, of course, that makes perfect sense, you know. So to me, that feels like like a, a truth. So just putting that forth. And I, I actually yeah. uh, just found that uh, ritual article. Um, so it's okay if I, I'm just going to briefly mention it. It's uh, it's also on Elephant Journal, it turns out. It's by Daniel uh, Moeller, and it's called An Agonizing Reappraisal, A Letter to the New Spirituality. Um, and so in it, he talks about, you know, the importance of ritual and how in so many ways that uh, ritual has disappeared from, you know, use of this in a lot of contexts. But um, he suggests that, um, and this is, I'll quote from it just briefly, he says, ritual establishes a rhythm of participation between self and other so that relationship can ensue. Ritual controls the experience one encounters when engaging in healthy and when engaging in healing work and non-ordinary reality. It allows context for a situation the waking consciousness of the mind is normally unable to process and account for. And I just I really like that idea that it's kind of like creating a virtual medium that you know different orders of uh, you know intelligence or consciousness or you know can perhaps meet and and dialogue. Yeah, well, I think, you know, you, what you're doing with ritual is you are uh, giving a little announcement to the deep psyche, you know, that we, we this is an elevated piece now. You know, we are leaving the mundane and we're entering mm, elevated territory here, you know. So, so we're bringing sort of everything to the table with that piece and, uh, and then it, it, it colors the experience. I find quite nicely. I I wanted to jump back to uh, something that Nishay said earlier and and bring it back around for a moment, this question of what it's like to be women in the psychedelic culture. Um, Because to me, that is pretty closely connected to the question of what does it mean to be a woman in America today? Uh, I, I, I see them as very similar questions. And something that Nishay and I have discussed briefly before um, has to do with just the, the, how difficult it is for women to stand up and speak. And what is that? And what is that? What's going on there? Um, I don't I don't really apprehend it in, in fullness, but I, I, I think about it a lot the more that I put my own work out and share my own voice in different platforms and different mediums because I find myself constantly, uh, not so much now, but there was a long period of time when I would almost daily come up against this, this fierce voice that would say, what is it that you possibly have to say, woman? 
like, what do you have to contribute to this larger conversation? Why should anyone listen to you? And I would love to know if men have that experience. I've never talked to a man who was like, oh, yeah, I go through that too. <laughs> um, when I talk to my male friends who are in different positions of power and public figurehood and authority, um, they tend to say, oh, you know, the shadow for me is, or like the work for me is really staying humble and watching my ego and making sure it doesn't get inflated. And, and there's this assumption because the male voice is the dominant voice, but that's the issue we're all up against. When actually for me as a woman, I feel that I've been pretty strongly enculturated in different ways to believe that I don't have a voice and I don't have anything worthwhile to say. And so I fight against that, and it's in the face of that that I speak, you know. And so what's, I mean, what's that really about? Do other women have that kind of experience? Does that perhaps account for for why it is that, that there's still this incredible imbalance in terms of the representation of women's voices in the psychedelic community? Who, Nishé, you want to take that one? Sure. Well, just, I mean, with my own, I, I definitely identify with what, what you're describing of your own experience. And um, I have really pushed myself to, uh, you know, to speak as much as I can and to put my voice out there because I feel that it's important to do so. But I definitely have a lot of resistance to speaking in public and getting up on a podium on the stage and being watched by lots of people. Um, and I, I am curious if that's something, you know, how prevalent that is for for men to, to encounter. And I also noticed just listening to some of my talks from uh, like a few years ago, I sometimes compensate for being so nervous by sounding almost like almost, I don't know, harsh or overconfident, but it's just a kind of coping mechanism to deal with that underlying, you know, uncertainty. And so that's one thing I'm trying to work on now is, is you know, not allowing the the nervousness to affect my, you know, the presentation of my ideas as much as possible. Hmm. I, I, I have found for myself, I must say, uh, when I, I spoke last year at the Women's Visionary Congress, again, this was new to me, and and I had given talks before to smaller groups, but also somewhat uninitiated, so that when I went to speak at the Women's Visionary Congress, I was uh, incredibly beside myself with, with nervousness because I thought, well, you know, my experiences will probably be just old hat to these people. Because, again, you know, I wasn't really familiar with the uh, the uh, community. And and one thing, and so I gave this talk, and it was uh, it w- was not at my best. I was far, far, far too nervous. Uh, but but what I learned after I gave that talk was, gosh, I actually do have something to put in the pot here, you know. And and so I've been able to relax. And I have also found the key also is to inject some humor into your talk and 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 some just humor uh, about myself as well. And that helps so much because uh, people love to laugh. You know, they respond to to, to humor. And uh, so if we can bring that kind of levity 
uh, into our talks and, and just sort of that lightness about ourselves. I will just say for me, that has helped me so much. And I think, you know, the guys that you are talking to, Lily, of course, are the guys who are, they're like just naturally good at, at public speaking. And then there are mm-hmm. plenty, plenty of guys who are terrified. You couldn't pay them enough. No way. For a, a host of different reasons, right? Insecurity and low self-worth and just plain shyness, whatever. Who's, no way would they get up on that stage. Um, and yet the guys who can, absolutely, they... You know, there seems to be, uh, you know, they're very, very well received and, and, uh, we, we are in a culture that, that, uh, you know, really highlights that it's a, it is a patriarchal culture. It still very, very much is. Uh, so, yeah. Hmm? Well, one of the things I'm thinking as I'm hearing each of you speak is that, um, over the course of the last few years, I've, I've landed on this discovery that I absolutely love public speaking. Um, I find it to be invigorating, and I feel very much at home when I'm doing it, which is really, really um, interesting. And that doesn't sound to say I don't feel nervous sometimes or or feel a kind of pressure with it. Um, And part of that is because I'm very confident in my ideas, and part of the reason I'm confident in my ideas is because they're always changing. So I can get up there and I can say something and I'm willing to, you know, have a conversation or be asked a question and really reevaluate what it is that I've just said. Um, you know, I, I welcome that. So I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to get it right in a certain way. But there's also a way in which, you know, this talk I gave a few weeks ago at UMass Amherst on sex, drugs, and power, talking about sexual abuse in the psychedelic community, um, I had a certain air, at least internally, of ferocity um, around the issue because it's an issue that um, I think is so tremendously important and I feel so protective of um, my sisters within this community and other women within this community whose whose lives and well-being are endangered by some of this behavior, right? And I felt very confident and very full getting up there and, and kind of doing that and you know it, it it's funny because kind of part of the something that i uh some feedback that I've gotten um or just in the way that people um have related to me around that particular talk uh for the most part, you know it seems like it has been really well received um but there's a there's a way in which um you know people people read into that that confidence as though um and tell a story about you know oh that that woman's ego you know whereas i don't think that they necessarily tell that story when it's a man because they're more used to seeing men in that position when a woman gets up and speaks with a tremendous amount of you know firmness or conviction in her voice you know suddenly that's there's we call that other names that maybe aren't as kind, you know? Yeah, Yeah. actually, I've also experienced some of that. I mean, it's not the main reception to my work, but I definitely have, like, encountered that. You know what? Oh, I was going to say, I think we just need to keep getting up there with all that empowerment and that, uh, that, that precious information and all of that light. And just keep speaking, and and uh, the rest of it be damned. You know, I mean, if that's their reaction, that's their reaction. Um, but it it must not keep 
women from from getting up there and 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 sharing the very important piece that they they have to to offer here you know i mean i just kind of feel like you know what if that's what it is i don't give a shit i don't you know i i i either was asked to speak or i offered to speak and i and i and i share and if they're going to have that reaction they're going to have that reaction but in in my estimate the more women who do get up and 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 the three of us i think in our own way give other women permission to to do that you know that that sort of see us and say well well geez maybe maybe i should just kind of go for it you know and do that so so we just keep doing that and and that eventually perhaps that dissipates or or not what <laughs> no i think you're right i mean we just we just keep doing it i mean that's what we do we keep doing it we keep speaking and uh, and we keep learning and we keep growing. I mean, what else is there to do? And that's a rich path, I think, in and of itself, you know. Um, and in a certain way, it's like I find it, personally, I find it helpful to talk about some of these things and relate together around some of these things because um, because it helps me, it, it helps me have more courage and it helps me to understand, you know, what it is that I'm that I'm working against in a certain way or what it is that I'm uh, defying by by having a strong voice, you know? Well, um, yeah. I mean, people will always throw their spears. They will. And and the, the little talk that I have on Psychedelic Salon, I heard from so many people and, and wonderful letters. And then I got, I got a heat letter, a heat letter. That, that I, I, I couldn't even read to, to the end, but then had to realize, okay, that this is, this is part of it. This is part of it. You put yourself out there and there are some that will throw their spears and, um, and, uh, they'll use some, you know, some pretty mean language while they're at it. And, and that, that is not new. This go, you know, this is just the human experience. And so I think that, so part of this is just that courage and that, commitment and that dedication to the message that you are bringing and the uh, uh, hope to, you know, create a dialogue with, with other people and you just keep putting yourself out there like that and, you know, sort of let that other stuff go uh, because it's not going to go away, I, I really don't right. think. Right. Unfortunately, you know. But then, of course, as I know, you have discovered there are so many, many people who are just so thrilled to receive what you have to offer. Really, really thrilled. You know? And then, and you have no idea the ripple effect of, of your words and your actions, especially in doing what, you know, we three are doing in our own unique ways. There is an incredible ripple. So, you know, not not to be under, underestimated. And, yes, community uh, among ourselves is, is very important to bounce ideas off each other. And, yeah, whatever, give each other a call and say, look, I got the worst letter. I can't even tell you, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and sort of, right. you know, hopefully laugh that off and, and, and let that go and, and keep going. I mean, that is essential, essential that we, you know, support each other and look out for each other and, and also you know it just 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 all all, all of, of of what's involved with that it's 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 essential it's essential within an environment that maybe is not always going to be so supportive uh any any parting 
parting words, Lily? Oh, um, can we hear from Nishay first? Yes, yes. Um, well, I definitely think that the more conversations like this that happen, the better. Because as Lily mentioned just a moment ago, you know, being able to really think explicitly about these issues and the potential challenges and, you know, looking past the superficial threats is definitely very encouraging and, you know, I think will help me the next time that I am speaking out in front of a group of people. And so, you know, I think that's definitely a kind of a gift to be able to to share these ideas. And so I wanted to thank you both for for that. No, thank you, Nishay, and thank you, Lily. Yeah, this um this is wonderful. I mean, I think we've I think we've begun something here. And uh and I would very much like to do do m- more of this. Um there's there's quite a lot to talk to and we've we've just sort of barely covered it with this this conversation. So, mm-hmm. and 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 Lily, my god, definitely want to well, I want to pick both your brains more when we <laughs> get off the phone here. So, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, one thing I do want to add um, as kind of closing words is a quotation from a writer named Parker Palmer. Are either of you familiar with his work? No. Um, he's very much a, a teacher and a, just a brilliant human being. And so he um, he has a, a quotation from a book called The Courage to Teach where he says, when a movement goes public, not only does it have a chance to influence others with its values, but it also meets challenges that compel it to check and correct its values. There is so much soul force in making the decision to live an undivided life, and so much reinforcement when people who have made it come together, that the shadow of self-righteousness is almost certain to emerge. The only way to minimize the shadow and maximize light is to expose the movement to public critique and to take that critique seriously. Wow, bravo. Beautiful. Well, He's thank good. you. This has been a pleasure, and it's it's wonderful to get to talk about these things. And, and uh, hopefully for the women listening and the men listening, there's some insight and inspiration. And by all means, all of us are, I think, you know, very accessible and very interested in hearing from people and um, and keeping the conversation going, eh? Definitely. Yeah, thank you both so much. This was an honor, really an honor, uh, to to converse with such incredible, intelligent women of of such heart. Thank you both so, so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. All right. Have a great weekend. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And thank you, too, Shona. I really appreciate your taking the time to organize this conversation, and I'm sure that I'm passing along the thoughts of everyone else here in the salon when I say that I hope that this is only the first of a great many of conversations like that that uh, I'll get to play here in the salon. Now, as much as I dislike having to mention this, I have to admit that I was shocked to learn that Shona had received a hate letter after her previous appearance here in the salon. First of all, with the sole exception of Terence McKenna, I've had more requests for another talk by Shona than for any other speaker we've had here in the salon. 
So it really surprises me to hear that she received a hateful letter from someone in the salon. One of the things that I so admire about you and our other fellow saloners is that when someone disagrees with the speaker or with me, they've always been civil in the way they pointed out, or almost always, uh, when they pointed out what they thought were our errors. There's nothing wrong with disagreements about issues, but by name-calling and other hateful ways of expressing oneself, uh, well, that person, uh, to me at least, is no longer someone I want to welcome here in the salon. I've received a few of those letters myself, and... Even uh, as thick-skinned as I am, I must admit they hurt. So if you feel inclined to make a personal attack on somebody simply because you disagree with them, well, then you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. Discussion and disagreement are fine. In fact, uh, they're quite necessary, as long as the discussion remains civil and not personal. Enough said. Now, while there were quite a number of issues that these wonderful women addressed, About the only one that I feel qualified to talk about is when near the end there was a discussion about public speaking, and the question was asked whether men also had a fear of getting up and speaking in public. Years ago I read that uh, while the fear of cancer and death were fears that were on almost everybody's short list, the fear of speaking in public was the number one fear of the vast majority, over 90% of the people that were asked, said speaking in public was their number one fear. Just ask your friends and see if that isn't so with them. Actually, uh, that's one of the reasons, uh, way back in the 70s, I became a motivational speaker. When I decided to leave the practice of law for a more enjoyable occupation, I became, uh, for a few years at least, a so-called motivational speaker. And uh, for a while, I always opened with a line uh, saying how nervous I was. Not only was that true... It also immediately brought the audience to my side because they were saying to themselves, well, better him up there than me. (laughs) So uh, my advice to you, whether man or woman, if you always want to have a skill that people are willing to pay you for, find something that most other people don't want to do. And if you look around with that thought in mind, you will most likely come to the same conclusion that I did. Public speaking is a heck of a lot easier than cleaning out porta potties, uh, detasseling corn, picking cucumbers, or uh, <laughs> doing some of the other jobs that most of us try to avoid. Having had some of those uh, other distasteful jobs, I found that uh, public speaking is uh, the best choice for me. Maybe you should look into it yourself. Uh, perhaps the dearth of women speaking at psychedelic conferences has something to do with the normal human hesitancy of speaking in public as much as it does with the fact that uh, most of the conferences are organized by men. (laughs) And uh, while I'm on the subject of public speaking, I want to tell you about the upcoming Palenque Norte lecture series that uh, is going to be held at this year's Burning Man Festival. In 2003, the first year of the Palenque Norte lectures, there were eight talks. This year, they're going to be, uh, well, around 30 or so. And amazingly, two speakers from that first year are going to be back again this year. I'm talking about Daniel Pinchbeck and Bruce Damer. And kicking off the lectures this year will be Annie Oak, co-founder of the Women's Visionary Congress. And uh, her talk is one I'm really looking forward to with great anticipation. It's titled, How to Party Hard Over 50. (laughs) That same afternoon, Katie Tomlinson, who is the founder of the Greeners Association for Psychedelic Studies at the Evergreen State College is going to be speaking about building a psychedelic student movement. I won't uh, list all of the speakers right now, but you can go to planquenorte.com 
and click on the 2014 schedule where you'll also see that John Gilmore, who is the co-founder of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, is going to be available for an hour-long Q&A session. That's something I'd like to be at. I'd also uh, like to compliment everyone involved in arranging for the speakers this year. As you just heard, it's not unusual at a large conference to find that men speakers greatly outnumber the women. Unfortunately, uh, well, that's still true with Palenque Norte. However, the ratio this year is only uh, three men for every one woman speaker, which is uh, still a ways away from our first year. (laughs) You can hear something coming now, can't you? You see, in that year, there were 17 speakers, nine of whom were women. But, uh, of course, being a man who has kissed the Blarney Stone twice, I'm probably uh, fudging a little bit more than I should. While uh, the numbers are accurate, they uh, don't actually reflect the time that the speakers had for their talks, because seven of the women were on a panel where, for two hours, we were treated to what they called the real vagina monologues. (laughs) That was a classic panel, I have to tell you. Uh, And, uh, by the way, the other two women that year were Allison Gray and her daughter Zena. So, while I can't claim that the Planque Nortes have always been perfectly balanced, at least I can tell you that our hearts have always been in the right place. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>